Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, are you ready to do some war room shit on this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast? It's been a while since I've done any war room shit, I'm going to be honest with you. I was going to ask you, do you remember the last time you did war room shit? Yeah, it had to be like 07, 08. You know, it's mm-hmm. been a while. It's been a good long while. Yeah. You know, I would counter that by saying I feel like we do war room shit every week here on the Co-Main Event Podcast. It's pretty much all war room shit when we start recording this thing. Is it, though? Is it, though? I mean, (laughs) be honest with yourself. Is it war? I mean, it might be like skirmish room at best, you know? You don't even have a fucking weapons room in your house. You're not going to sit there and tell me you got a war room. That's true. Do you think that what we do here is any more or less war room shit than what happens at the UFC headquarters on a Tuesday afternoon? Look, we know by now, we the UFC, Dana White in particular, loves to take the language of like hyper-masculine violent stuff and apply it to what is dudes sitting around doing business shit. <laughs> loves it. War room shit. Talking about people being a savage. He's a killer. And what he means is like he, he's the guy who runs a company. Like, yeah, just sitting around in an office, basically. So kind of far yeah. from like Conan the Barbarian, but he loves that imagery. Uh, this obviously is Dana White's quote from the post fight press conference there on Saturday night after this UFC fight night event. You know, Dana White was on one for this post fight press conference. He he came with uh, with barbs. He was ready to, to talk some shit. 
at this post-fight press conference, but somebody asked him about the decision to put the BMF title on the line for Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje's main event fight at UFC 291 in July. And here is his quote. I'm looking at the trans description from Mike Heck on MMA fighting. He says, it was war room shit. Every Tuesday, we're in there, and we're just putting that card together for Utah. We thought that Poirier and Gaethje is such an awesome fight. Masvidal retired, so we put the BMF title on the line. Uh, You have no idea how many of these fighters want to fight for the BMF title. They all want to fight for that belt. It's fun. It's different. So we'll do it again. When you think about doing it in the first place, Masvidal and Diaz were the two right guys, and so are these. These are the two right guys for the second BMF title fight. So whether that thing is in play or not in play that fight is what it is everybody wants that belt so what the hell that is his description of war room shit over at the ufc headquarters do we know if the belt confers any actual monetary advantages ah man it's just fun it's different everybody wants to fight for it so what the hell so it's kind of for the, the purposes of its influ- influence and impact on your life and your earning capability in the UFC, kind of not that different from going and buying a replica belt from the uh, concession stand, throwing it over your shoulder, as fighters have done in the past. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know what you sound like right now? You sound like a guy who doesn't understand war room shit. Yeah, I guess war room shit here sounds like some guys just sitting around of a Tuesday afternoon making <laughs> shit up, which that's fine. <laughs> But also, uh, the the reasoning that Jorge Masvidal retired, and so now we get the the BMF title back out the closet, and put it, does that mean whoever wins here, are we just going to be like, we made a big deal out of it, it's going to disappear, we'll never mention it again, even if fighters keep mentioning it until somebody retires? And Is it like that? Like somebody has to piece out the game before the BMF title can then re-enter circulation, possibly at an entirely different weight class? So you're saying that once you receive the BMF title, it's you get it for life. It's like being on the Supreme Court. It's kind of how it you sounds. Just, well, because yeah, if uh, if Jorge Masvidal won the BMF title at UFC 244 against Nate Diaz, he then rattled off four straight losses to end his career, obviously, with the Gilbert Burns loss at UFC 287 in April of this year. So if the BMF belt were a real thing, he would have lost it many times over in fact i think the lineal bmf champion would be leon edwards right at this point but here we are now the you know he vacated it is what happened ben when he retired the bmf title was vacated and now we're going to put it on the line for dustin poirier versus justin gaethje and hey don't mistake this conversation if there's two guys who should rightfully fight for a bad motherfucker title in any organization, it might as well be Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje. Uh, We got no one has any problem running this one back. We know exactly what we're going to get from these two guys out there. And, you know, the UFC just says, what the hell? We might as well sweeten the deal by adding the BMF title on there. But, you know, what I think the actual war room shit probably was. Have you looked at this card, by the way? UFC 291, July 29th, is a hell of a card. Dustin Poirier versus Justin Gaethje. Jan Blahovich versus Alex Pereira. Uh, Paulo Costa versus Ikram Asakarov. Tony Ferguson versus Bobby Green. Michael Chiesa versus Kevin Holland. Derek Lewis versus Marcos Ruggiero de Lima. And the Wonder Man, Stephen Thompson, against Michel Pereira. Like, yeah, that's a great card. That is no a good argument. Card. But what you might notice about it 
is since we're headlining it with Dustin Poirier versus Justin Gaethje, it flies in the face of what we think is the current UFC philosophy around pay-per-views, which is put one, sometimes two title fights on the line on these pay-per-views. So when you really start to think of it, perhaps the true war room shit was these guys looking at UFC 291 being like, how do we get a title fight on here? What's the title fight we can put up at the top of this thing so we can put a belt on the poster in all the Buffalo Wild Wings from coast to coast? Yeah. Now, see, and that does lead me to my question. I think the question that's on all of our minds is, with the return of the BMF title, will we also see the return of the BMF Wings? Because you recall, Chad Dundas, you and I, I... I recall it like it was yesterday. We went down there to Buffalo Wild Wings after having been told that not only would they be showing the fights, they would also be serving up the BMF wings. Kind of neither of those things ended up being true when we got down there. Because first of all, we were like, oh, you guys showing the fights? And they're like, there's UFC fights tonight? And we were like, yep, it's a pay-per-view. And they were like, well, you can watch the one that's on e- the part that's on ESPN but we are not going to have that pay-per-view. And so we had to go to a residential establishment and continue our evening. But also when we asked about the BMF wings themselves, they were like, yeah, we, we, we guess we could do something like that. Like as if, like it was our idea yeah, and not like a Didn't promotion pay. that they had emailed us out various, like more than <laughs> one press release about. Yeah. Didn't they like get out a three ring binder at one point and start flipping through it to find out if they could make the BMF wings? That's what I remember. What they did basically was just be like, all right, let us just put several different hot wing sauces together, throw them on these wings, serve it to you, and then dare you to tell us these are not the BMF wings. Because (laughs) what can we say? Yeah, no, we couldn't say anything. We'd just eaten the wings. Uh, Remember, you guys are listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. Two weeks left now in Pledge Month to celebrate our 11th anniversary of making this podcast. We hope that you guys enjoyed the last couple weeks of our free sneak preview of the Patreon content that goes on over at patreon.com slash co-main event. If you did like it, we cordially invite you to consider supporting the show by joining up to follow us over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Over there, you get loads of extra audio and video content as well well as access to our official discord message board the coolest people in mma are constantly chatting it up over there where the only rule is no assholes remember guys we can only keep making the show with the support of our awesome listeners please consider joining the cme patreon page this month over at patreon.com co-main event if you sign up with one of our new annual subscription plans during pledge month you save 10 percent off if you join at the 10 or 20 dollar level We'll send you a free shirt. That's right. If you sign up at one of the annual subscriptions of our upper two tiers, we'll let you go into our merch shop at CME.com and pick up a shirt, pick a size, shoot me an email at podcast at gmail.com to tell me what you want and we'll get it in the mail to you absolutely free. As we said before, this offer is only available to patrons in the U.S., but as we promised last week, a special deal for our international subscribers as well. So here it is. If you are an international subscriber who signs up for an annual deal at the $10 or $20 level, shoot us an email and I'll send you a discount code that will save you 99% off your purchase over at cme.com in the shop, comaineventcom in the shop. Uh, You still have to pay the shipping 
but there it is. That's a pretty good deal. Come party with us, you guys. We think it's the funnest, smartest, most welcoming group of men and women talking fights online. But if you don't believe us, here's our guy, Tom Hughes from England to tell you all about it. Hit us up at patreon.com slash co-main event. Hi, I'm Tom Hughes from Birmingham, England, and here's why you should become a CME patron. For £1 a month, it allows you to become a member of the CME live chat, which happens once a week, as well as, most importantly, the CME official Discord server, of which I'm one of the admins. As a proud £8 member of the Patreon, I have access to three additional podcasts a week, the live chat, Doing the Damn Thing, and CME Patreon Power Hour, home of the CME Power Hour Power Rankings, which are really badly named. <laughs> I'm a patron to a to few podcasts, and I have to say the CME's patron offer is the best. For £8, I have access to 12 additional podcasts a month, and to probably the world's friendliest internet community, of which I'm proud to be a member. Come and join us. You won't regret it. We got music this week from Stockholm-based producer Simeo, a.k.a. Co-Made Event Podcast listener Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash Simeo. That's S-E-E-M-I-O, Simeo. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Made Event Podcast. In round number one, Mackenzie Dern went full beast mode on Angela Hill over the weekend. Perhaps we have no idea how high she can fly. And in round number two, amazing, unparalleled, mind-blowing, and flabbergasting are all words Bloody Elbow's John Nash used to describe the latest revelations about the UFC's finances. And in round number three, Dana White says Francis Ngannou's deal with the PFL doesn't make sense to him which I guess means it's not a total screw job for the fighter. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by NordVPN. We've been telling you guys about NordVPN for a long time. Ben and I both have it installed on all of our devices It's hassle-free, and it works great. With NordVPN, you get the fastest VPN on the planet. NordVPN provides online protection with a single click. Don't miss your favorite content. Even when you're traveling, stay at home virtually. Stay safe from malware with threat protection. Ben, I know you love NordVPN, my man. What's your favorite part of using it? Well, you know my favorite part is how it clicks on no matter where you are, no matter what Wi-Fi you happen to be on, keep you safe when you're bouncing from public Wi-Fi to public Wi-Fi. doesn't matter, Chad, if you're down at the home fitness supply store buying a whole bunch of weights for your garage gym. doesn't matter if you're then hobbling down to the drugstore to get some ointment for your tired, sore, old-ass muscles. does not matter if you're then down at the physical therapy joint trying to repair the damage you've done to yourself wherever you are. NordVPN has you covered. Chad, you can also access Nord's amazing cybersecurity apps, including the NordPass Password Manager, helping you keep all your passwords straight and close at hand. And with the NordLocker encrypted cloud storage app, you can keep your files backed up, synced, and protected from snoopers, loss, or malware in its secure cloud. Nobody will see, touch, or sell them. And by the way, do you want to get four free months instead of the usual three? Well, right now, if you sign up using the link exclusively for CME listeners, you can. 
Every purchase of a two-year plan receives four-plus bonus months on top when you go to nordvpn.com slash co-main or use the code co-main when you sign up. This includes all the plans we always tell you guys about, the standard plan, the plus plan, and the whole enchilada, the complete plan. It's risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash co-main or use the code co-main. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Didi, who writes, Hello, internet friends. Conor McGregor is getting back in the testing pool, and Dana says they think McGregor versus Chandler is on before the end of the year. So let's indulge in the fantasy that all this is true. <laughs> with, McGregor, with McGregor having the four-part mega miniseries about him on Netflix right now, what do you expect to be his popularity when he returns? Bigger than before? Less than before? About the same? I'll hang up and listen. So, Ben, folks, uh, you and I, I don't think, have watched any of the four-part Conor McGregor uh, miniseries, the mega miniseries, as Dee Dee calls it here, that is on Netflix. On Netflix, It is called McGregor Forever, in case you guys want to search for it and go find it. Uh, I think calling it a quote-unquote documentary is pushing the limits, perhaps, of what that term is meant to imply. But I also think, since it is basically a Conor McGregor and team produced piece of footage since it's made by them with no uh pretense of objectivity i think it's going to be an effective whitewash for the man's reputation as he returns to the ufc Uh, i don't know that he will be any less popular when he comes back unless you want to blame just the sheer time away from the sport but i would anticipate that if anything he would be exactly as popular as before i tend to say less than before just because it's been a while, and it's been a while since anybody's seen him be good at fighting. So that does not help you. And I also think that, remember at Conor McGregor's heyday, uh, where he's fighting Floyd Mayweather, he's throwing two belts up over his shoulders, you know, he's really at the height of his mega stardom powers. No one even was talking about any Paul brothers in the combat sports back then that's true we're living in kind of a different era now and i i mean i think that he will be able to come back and step into a like some degree of the same popularity that he enjoyed before but i think the time period where conor mcgregor was a rocket ship blazing through the sky that that's cooled a little bit just because you got to win some fights and you got to stay around you got to stay in the public eye for that to happen and uh i think that he's more of a name inside the bubble these days than he is outside that could well be i mean i know the wins and losses didn't seem to cool his star there for a while he's gone three and four in his seven fights since he since he fought floyd mayweather he will be 35 years old Jesus. when he returns after this july at some point to fight michael chandler we think so it is very possible that we have already seen the zenith of both Conor McGregor's celebrity and what he was capable of doing in the cage. If anything, man, he has been astoundingly good at playing out the string. Yeah. Since, you know, he he first, he beat Jose Aldo in December of 2015 to win the UFC featherweight championship. I guess he bounced back. He beat Eddie Alvarez, you know, in uh, November of 2016 to uh, win the UFC lightweight championship. 
And, but that, I mean, like that's a long time ago at this point. And he has been pretty successful in continuing to cultivate or maintain interest in his fighting, despite the fact that he was never really the best fighter in the UFC. And he certainly hasn't been among the elite since that as Eddie Alvarez fight. And here we are 2023. He probably doesn't even fight Michael Chandler until November or December of this year. If it happens at all, he's going to get paid a lot of money. That's it's, it's kind of unreal to think that he, you know, it's been what seven years or so since he was considered among the best. And here he is still, considered the biggest draw the biggest star in the sport yeah it feels like he's lived several lifetimes since that jose aldo fight next question this week comes to us from the dab king but not the dance okay i, I get it. that is i believe that is a marijuana yeah. reference mm-hmm. the dab king but not the dance merely says edmund shabazian what even is going on with that so Edmund Shabazian went out there and uh, he kind of hot caught a hot one this past weekend against uh, Anthony Hernandez. I questioned this before it happened because Shabazian was an underdog headed into this fight. And that made me feel like, what are we doing with this guy, right? We had just righted the ship after his three straight losses in 2020 and 21. It seemed like he was kind of back on an upward trajectory of being a potential UFC star. He's still a young guy. He had just changed teams and seemingly straightened out some stuff in in some training. And then we serve him up this fight with Hernandez where he came in as the betting underdog and just got overwhelmed over the course of this thing uh, en route to the third round TKO loss here. I don't know what even is going on with that to specifically answer the question here from the dab King. And it's possible that, that nothing, that there's nothing going on with that, that there's no plan, that there's no blueprint, that we're just putting God's names in the crown Royal bag and shaking it up and pouring it out. And whatever we get to, uh, Fill the schedule is what we get, even when you got a guy with as much apparent potential as Edmund Shabazian. Yeah, and you do see the potential there. I mean, at this point, he's 25. He had that three-fight skid that was uh, where the UFC seemed like maybe it had overmatched him a little bit and then brought him kind of back down to earth. He got the TKO win in December to kind of get back in the green section of the Wikipedia. And then you're right, this one doesn't exactly seem like they were thinking, let us get that Edmund Shabazian rub on Anthony Hernandez. Doesn't seem like they really care that much. And so it did seem like we're just getting, we're seeing who will agree to fight each other and just kind of throwing them in there and seeing how it, it turns out, which, okay. You watch him fight, especially in this fight where it's like, there are moments where you look at him and you go, there's something there. He does have something. It's still a little bit raw and unpolished, but he has some real ability. And then, But also, maybe some of the fight IQ isn't entirely there yet. Maybe it's just an experience thing, because there were moments where, you know, in that first round where he ends up in full mount on Anthony Hernandez, and you're thinking, well, here we go. And then the next thing you know, he's on the bottom trying for an arm bar like it's 2003. And you're like, no, wait a minute, man. That's not that's not a great idea against somebody who's yeah. good, you know? Uh Little stuff like that, and I think that you saw that in this fight where 
some of those just sort of tactical errors that he's making as the the fight is going and things are happening awful fast in there so you can understand how it happens especially young guy with not a ton of experience and it seems like he's just not managing his energy as well as he needs to and by the time you get into the third round anthony hernandez has worn you down and can put you away then and you still think though that there's got to be a a chance to let the guy develop into something i don't know you just you get to a point where it seems like is the ufc gonna say uh we gave him all the rope we're gonna give him put him in there against somebody who doesn't smash him. Let's see what we can get as far as getting somebody else a little bit of shine off his name. And then the next thing you know, he shows up in PFL and ends up being awesome or something. Yeah. I mean, he's only 25 years old still, and we have seen people make the turnaround much later than that. Obviously Charles Oliveira being perhaps the archetypal example at this point for the guy who turns things around a little bit later in his career. Uh, But he has been in the UFC for 10 fights now, dating back to 2018. I don't know if you get into a baseball prospect type situation where once you get 500 at bats at the major league level, they start to think of you as sort of a finished product. I don't think it's like that. But if he is going to turn it around, it would be nice to see him start to turn it around and he's certainly not being coddled here by the UFC there. The, you know, especially this fight was kind of a a fire, frying pan into the fire type situation. So we'll see what happens. He's He seems like he's still got a ton of potential, like you said, a lot of ability. And hey, man, if fight IQ is the is the thing you need to clean up, that doesn't seem that bad. Yeah. That seems like that could well be a thing that you could clean up if you're willing to work on it. So we'll see. We'll keep track, tracking Edmund Shabazi in here next Question this week comes to us from Isaac Spooner. Two weekends in a row, two weeks in a row, I should say, for Isaac Spooner here on Listener Mail. He says, Joaquin Buckley called out Maximus Decimus Paul on Saturday. Can these fighters please hold on? Holds finger to imaginary earpiece. For a what? Oh, that's a change of pace. Okay, copy that. <clears throat> he called out Paul to sponsor him. So that's new. What what did the UFC Consulting Service CME think of Buckley on Saturday? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, CME Consulting Service, that's us, think of Buckley on Saturday. I mean, it is certainly a change of pace to jump on the mic in the UFC where sponsorships are banned individually <laughs> for fighters and to ask a guy who is, I guess, considered to be a competitor, especially now that he has at least in theory, signed up for some manner of partnership with the PFL well, we're talking uh, about, to sponsor you. He was talking about Logan Paul, right? He's calling. He, he was calling for Logan Paul with the prime drink oh, yeah. okay, to sponsor yeah. him, uh, saying, come sponsor an MMA fighter. And I don't, I don't know if that's going to be the thing that does it. I don't know if that's going to land you the prime sponsorship. They just something tells me that if Logan Paul was going to look for somebody who can be the on the MMA side, the face of this thing, I don't know if he's like, okay, well, top of the list is Joaquin Buckley, obviously. Uh, (laughs) Let's see if we can get in touch with his people, find out what they're thinking. I, I just, I don't know. But you know what? You might as well take a shot, you know, like that old Dan Severn thing again. How will you know that that's what I want if I don't tell you? So you might as well, I, the, the interesting thing about this Joaquin Buckley fight, you know, he gets the head kick, knockout and everything. Um, I don't want to say this was aided by Dundasso or anything, but couldn't help but notice 
He gets yourself kind of an accidental clash of heads where he goes and sort of like shoves on the dude's face where he's grabbing it. looks like where you're going, oh, are we talking about just clash of heads? Was there maybe a finger in the eye there or something? We stop just momentarily, check everybody's all right, and almost immediately on the restart, bang, head kick. And, you know, they, another good highlight real finish from Joaquin Buckley and everything. Uh, I also do... There was a moment in the post-fight interview, Chad, where he talks about going down to 170 from 185, and that at 185, he was cheating himself, and then started to name off a bunch of foods that he had been eating. And I was going, okay, that does sound, though, awesome. Like, where he's just like, Wendy's, you know, just like pizza, naming off all stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, this, what you're talking to me about right now is the best of life. Uh, and, And that was you cheating yourself? Well, okay. Fair enough. I mean, what what product makes the most sense to to sponsor Joaquin Buckley? It's like some, if there were shoes specifically for kicking guys in the in the face. How about those Chuck Norris action jeans? Okay. Yes. The one, okay. The stretchy ones yeah. where you can wear jeans, you know, still look like a responsible member of society, but when you need to kick somebody upside their head, these jeans allow you the flexibility to do that. I love that. That's you know what I think the CME consulting service actually just figured it out. Boom. So you're welcome. Can Venmo us our forty bucks now. Next question this week comes from Yo Mama's favorite son. Okay. So I guess that would be my brother. <laughs> uh, he writes: Seems like the UFC just can't wait for Aljamain Sterling to lose. Is there a world where Sterling is forced to mix miss the next year due to injuries? And the UFC strips him. Uh, well, first of all, it wouldn't take a year. They would strip him in a matter of weeks yeah. if it felt like he wasn't going to be able to make uh, you know, the next date. Look what they did to Francis Ngannou. He asked for an extra month and they stripped him. And had a, I guess they didn't strip him, but they had an in- interim title fight uh, just because he couldn't make the date. What we're talking about here is all Jermaine Sterling and Sean O'Malley at UFC 292. There has been some back and forth about whether or not that fight will happen. Uh, Sterling recently said that he was he was going to wait a little while to see how banged up he was from the Henry Cejudo fight, and then he would make a uh, decision about whether he felt like he could get ready for that. He has come out after that essentially and said, I think it's on, that he said, well, he, he said, fuck it, I think quite literally, and he wants to meet O'Malley there. Dana White bristled a little bit, when asked about this at the post-fight press conference and eventually said it's on essentially he i don't know if he said the word guaranteed but he said it's definitely on so we are left to think that we have in fact pressured all jermaine sterling into fighting sean o'malley on the scheduled date yeah well and the stuff dana white was saying about him was he was just like yeah this guy like basically trying to paint him as a head case for yeah not uh, immediately being super enthusiastic about turning right around and booking a fight right after a fight, you know? And uh, listening to Aljamain Sterling's comments in response to Dana White's comments, it's hard for not to feel for the guy. Here, I'm going to read you this quote. This is from the MMA fighting story over there by Mike Heck, uh, where he's talking about Dana White saying, you know, that 
he can't get out of his own way. He says, quote, when I look at all of that, I'm like, what else could you possibly want from a champion who is active, competing, doing the stuff that you ask of him, promote the fight, and I'm out here in these streets working? My thing with Dana is, damn, dog, why can't you give credit where credit is due? Even if you feel I can't get out of my own way, which there's no context behind that because I've literally done everything you've asked. What does that mean, Dana? I'm pretty sure he couldn't give you a straight answer of what that means. Why is it so hard for Dana to go, absolutely, the fight is done, we spoke to him, this kid's always shown up to the fights, always makes weight, always does the media stuff, we know he's going to show up. Yeah, he just fought two weeks ago, he's a little banged up, but he gave us his word, he's going to show up for this fight, the kid's a killer, the kid's a stud. The same way he does for Connor. If Connor does something wow isn't he awesome can i be awesome too dana i'm not asking for much if you want to if you want me to give you the car facts i'll give you the motherfucking car facts don't play with my name bro if we're gonna do this together let's get on the same page and let's do this shit the right way i said i'm fighting what else do you want me to do i'm fucking fighting just fuck let's figure this shit out which i can understand why you gotta be frustrated and it's you know your mama's favorite son and aljo both seem to be picking up on the vibe from the UFC that they're not absolutely thrilled with Aljo as champion. And that, I don't know if there's been a single fight they've booked for him yet, that they hope to see Aljo retain the title and and come out the champion still. And like, he can't, he can't not notice that. Clearly he's noticing it. it. It does seem just like, I would be super frustrated too. You work all your entire career to get to that point. And then when you're up there, the boss has nothing but complaints about you. And the complaint in this case is that what? He said that he's kind of banged up after he just fought a couple weeks ago. Shit, man. You know, Conor McGregor can fight fuck off on a yacht for water safety awareness uh, and get himself into a whole bunch of trouble while he's doing it. And still the UFC has nothing but kind things to say about him. And Aljo, he committed the sin of not enthusiastically enough accepting the fight while he's still probably fucking limping around as a result of the last fight, the last title fight that he just won. I'd be frustrated too, man. If you'll recall last Friday on the power hour, we read the quote from Aljamain Sterling, where he said his shins were still feeling quote unquote mushy. Yeah. After the Henry Cejudo fight. Uh, I'm not getting up to walk to the refrigerator to get an ice cream bar. If my shins are feeling mushy, let alone jumping back into a fight camp to go get it on with Sean O'Malley, who may in fact kick you in your mushy shins a couple times. So I see, I see where this man is coming from. Want to make sure that the shins aren't mushy anymore before you start getting ready uh, for a title fight. So I'm kind of, uh, I'm a little empathetic there. Also super grossed out by the idea of mushy shins. That really had an effect on you. I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. Here we are days later. I'm still thinking about it. That's going to do it this week for listener mail. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Ben, Mackenzie Dern came out of her corner aggressively from the word go here against Angela Hill, throwing crisp, powerful punches. And she really just kind of overwhelmed her over the course of this main event fight at UFC Fight Night over the weekend, leading to a very lopsided unanimous decision win. 49-43, for Mackenzie Dern over Angela Hill. I don't mind telling you, man, this is the best I think we've ever seen Mackenzie Dern look. And this was the first time that I have looked at her with the striking and obviously her grappling skills and thought this is a person who could compete at the top. I don't necessarily know if she is a former champion or a future champion, excuse me, but uh, this is a person who could make a run at it just from what we saw on Saturday. Yeah, she looks real good. And as you recall... Uh, once she started talking about all the things that had been going wrong in her life and training camp, or maybe maybe going wrong isn't how she would put it, but a lot of turmoil between getting divorced or coaches not being around, a lot of stuff like a difficult training camp, it seemed to get ready for this fight, which kind of, when I was thinking about where to put my money and $20 whenever I want to see again, made me go from, oh, Mackenzie Dern probably has the edge to, uh-oh. And then she went out there and she looked really good, especially... I was not expecting that Mackenzie Dern would have the advantage when they stood there at range striking. Yeah, yeah. That's what really surprised me. And when she she clipped Angela Hill in the first round with that right hand that put her down, and I don't know if Angela Hill ever fully recovered from that because it just seemed like the combination of that hurting her early on and then Mackenzie Dern was putting that pace on her, I it seemed like Angela Hill couldn't quite get back into the fight and really the only way she made it to the scorecards was through tremendous toughness because there were yeah. several points where it looked like this is almost over yeah the what was it left eye of angela hill was swelled almost completely shut by the time we got uh to the fifth round see the, the, we talked about this on friday knowing that Mackenzie dern was a fairly sizable favorite headed into the fight and we, i was asking the question well if she can't get it to the ground can she compete with Angela Hill on the feet? And I thought there's no way. In fact, we thought if this thing went to decision, it would probably be Angela Hill's fight. And as it turned out, uh, I was dead wrong about that. I this I don't know what Mackenzie Dern is doing during her admittedly tumultuous training camp. But whatever it is, it's working on the feet because I don't recall ever seeing her look this skilled or this confident, frankly, in her striking because she pretty much ran out of the corner and immediately started tagging Angela Hill right in the face with hard punches and looking like a power puncher, man, just like bringing yeah. some the heat with some of those strikes. So I was impressed. I don't know 
how much more vehemently I can say how impressed I was with Mackenzie Dern just looking almost like a different person to me, especially in the striking game. And then, of course, you add in the um, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu skills, which we all know about. She just looks like she looks like she is at this point ready for prime time. Rather suddenly, if you ask me, she's coming in off the majority decision loss uh, to Yan Nan back in October of 2022, but she's still 13 and three overall. Uh, she's only got a couple of other career losses, both of them in the UFC. And I don't know that you necessarily want to put her on a rocket ship straight to the top, but she looks like she belongs on that list of people that you would like to see uh, start getting closer to a title shot. Yeah, and I'll be interested to see exactly where she ends up in the rankings from this because it seemed like she was, I think she's eight right now, and I don't, but I don't think that's the most updated rankings after the fight. Uh, and there were moments in this fight too where, like the end of the third round, she ends up, she's in mount, she's raining down elbows, and she ends up going for the arm bar, which you can understand with uh, Mackenzie Dern's background and strengths that you know, her last two wins inside the distance were both arm bar submissions. So she sees that, she's probably going to jump on it. And I was amazed for one thing that Angela Hill was able to hold on in that moment because it seemed like she's, you know, you, you get in that situation against somebody like Mackenzie Dern where she's been putting a beating on you anyway, you're tired, then she's got the arm and she's digging to, to break your grip and, and extend that arm. You probably, there's a voice in your head probably going, well, this is exactly what we didn't want to happen against Mackenzie yeah. Dern. And she held yeah. on and, and managed to, you know, make it through that round and then make it to the scorecard. So Angela Hill deserves some attaboy credits for just toughness in that one but it also seemed like if you're in Mackenzie Dern's corner are you starting to say hey you know what we don't have to do this anymore we could just stay there and keep on elbowing people in the face until we force a referee to get in there and stop it you have that ability now yeah that's a good point the ground and pound was also nasty from Mackenzie Dern hammer fists and hard elbows also so I, I don't know man Maybe I just haven't been making mental notes on the last times that she fought, but I feel like she came out in this fight very suddenly looking like a fully rounded fighter who is ready to go uh, for the for the top. Angela Hill, on the other hand, who is a person that everybody in this sport likes, but she is now just three and six in her last nine fights, and that goes all the way back to May of 2020. She came into this fight on a two-fight winning streak, but obviously had that smashed fairly authoritatively by Mackenzie Dern. Uh, what do we think the immediate and long-term future is for Angela Hill, especially considering uh, that she's 38 years old, just turned in January, but at the same time, like she's getting up there in years for any kind of fighter, let alone a person who seems to uh, thrive on their quickness and their striking skills here. Those aren't necessarily skills that... Uh, that age that well. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's still plenty of people in the UFC and people who are going to be coming up into the UFC who Angela Hill could beat just on toughness, experience, and a well-rounded game. Uh, but also, you do start to wonder at this point, what are you in it for? Are Because making a run at the title seems kind of probably out of the question at this point. Are you there just to, you know, in the Bull Durham words, keep showing up to the ballpark and getting paid? And... You know, if so, this is a tough business to do that in because there's a cost to be paid for continuing to exist just just for those reasons. I don't know. You know, I think that 
she's her longevity enough in the UFC at this point is, is enough to justify her getting to sort of make that decision on her own. Like, I don't think she's at the point where the UFC feels like we don't have a place for Angela Hill anymore. Somebody who says yes to as much stuff as Angela Hill, you know, the UFC has got a spot. They need people like that. Uh, but I also would think that it might be time to, for her to start thinking about what are we in this for and what do we see as the end game? Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and we'll do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, I don't know. We might end up starting talking a little bit about the same thing here because I know I've read this. Uh, I'm a Bloody Elbow Substack subscriber, and I, I was tipped to it by seeing your tweet about it. But our dude John Nash has a very interesting article over there on the Bloody Elbow Substack. It's worth the subscription price alone about... Uh, like a latest analysis of the UFC finances in 2022. And wow. 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 That's my take from this thing, Chad. The UFC is... Hey, don't don't give away the store here because we got to talk about this in round number two. All right? Okay. So you're going to come out and give all the information and then what will we do the next time? The, I'm not going to give, give all the information. I'm just going to point out that... We're doing this stuff, you know, we're talking about all the money the UFC is making, uh, expenses way down, all that stuff that we'll that we'll dig into. But then I just wanted to highlight for you something. Uh, I, I, got, I got these in side-by-side tabs on my Firefox browser right now just to, just to drive it home. Got this one where I got one headline that says 13% revenue share, fighter pay drops, UFE profits blow past every, fighter, every fight promoter combined. And then I click over the next tab, which says Themba Garumbo only had $7 in bank account ahead of UFC <laughs> Vegas 73 win praises. Great guy. Colby Covington. I've been broke. Grimbo said during his post fight media scrum, I came to America seven weeks ago without money. I only had enough money to fly, get to the airport, to the gym, stayed at the gym. And then a friend sent me $200. It's been a roller coaster. I didn't have money. If you look at my bank account, there's $7 right now in my bank account. There's $7 and I have to enjoy this. I don't know how much I'm getting paid. All I've been focused on for this fight was to get the win. The win was the most important thing. The money is the byproduct of getting the win. Are you fucking kidding me? Living the dream of pro sports revenue while the athletes themselves are rolling in there with $7. Imagine if this man's fight had been canceled, called off his opponent, uh, gets sick making weight or something, and you go home back home to be like, well, so how far that $7 going to stretch? You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me. Uh, also d- doesn't know how much he's going to get paid. Which... Seems like you should know that. If I had $7 in my bank account, I might make it my business to find out how I was going to get paid. Yep. All right. Well, we are going to talk about the same thing here, Ben, because I once again today learned the hard way that if, I'll tell you what, if you want to hear from the business geniuses on Twitter, you want to hear from the, uh, the people who have a, a firm grasp on the world of, of business, just tweet something about the UFC fighter pay situation because all of a sudden, you got these guys coming on your timeline shouting about capitalism mm-hmm. and the free market and the function of business in our society. And then, I mean, you got guys out there just flat making shit up 
about the UFC's business practices. Guys on there saying, oh, it's all about to turn around for the fighters now that the UFC is making all this money. Keep in mind, says one guy on my Twitter timeline, they've only been making a billion dollars in revenue since 2017. Oh, is that all? So... Yeah, it's just it's about to turn around. We see the the fighter pay is going up, so like next year you'll probably see it, you know, take a take a turn for the better. Are you fucking kidding me? What are we doing here, guys? Shouting about capitalism. Busy. You gonna go to every fighter's house when they're sixty and they have CTE and they don't have anything to show for it, and you're gonna scream that's called capitalism in their faces? Is that what you're gonna do? You fucking kidding me with this bullshit? Bunch of dudes out here. But it's a bunch of guys who are about to be rich with their own business plans. They're out there sitting on billion dollar business plans that they're about to launch for themselves. That's why they are so on board with the UFC just keeping every cent of the money in the MMA industry. That is going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, to begin the round two discussion of John Nash's report over here on Bloody Elbow, I would like to read to you just two excerpts from two sections here as a nice little contrast just to get us going. One where the heading here says UFC filings show highest ever revenue, and it says according to their 8K, the UFC generated $1.140 billion, that's a billion with a B, revenue last year. This is the highest revenue the UFC has ever reported for a year, more than the $1.032 billion they saw in 2021, and a lot more than the $891 million they had in 2020. And then, Chad, I'm going to skip way down to the heading that says UFC expenses, including fighter pay, have gone down. While UFC has seen nothing but new highs for their revenue sources, the opposite is true for their expenses, which have gone down from 2021 to 2022. Now, that means that right now, we used to say, wasn't it outrageous that the UFC had managed to keep and had a plan to maintain a world in which fighters would never get above 20% of the revenue. Now we're looking at them down there around 13%, according to John Nash here, which... I mean, if you're the UFC, this was always the plan, right? Like, this is why Endeavor thought it was a good idea to get in business with the UFC, why you wanted to own the whole thing, why you wanted to break it off into its own thing with the WWE. It's because of this thing exactly, that you are making a ton of fucking money, and you are so successfully able to keep it away from the people who are actually fighting, bleeding, and suffering for that money. Yeah. Uh, They're... Fighter pay in total was down, what, 32.8 million roughly during 2022. And a lot of that, John Nash writes here, can probably be attributed to the fact that Conor McGregor and John Jones did not fight last year. So that saved them 
a chunk of money. But that in and of itself is a dangerous lesson for the UFC, because essentially, if they didn't know already, they found out fairly conclusively last year that having fewer superstars seems to mean that they just get to keep more of the profits because when those superstars don't fight, it's not as if they are passing along those savings to the rest of the workforce. They're just not paying it out. If you do the the math quickly in your head, if you have about 600 fighters on the roster and you have a $32.8 million surplus essentially in, in money to pay them, you could essentially send every fighter an extra $55,000 you think a guy with $7 in his bank account might feel nice if you sent him a $55,000 bonus at the end of the year because you were like, oh, hey, guys, we just realized uh, record profits and also potentially a record low of percentage that we are paying out to fighters. So here's a little something extra. But they're not doing that. They're keeping all of the money while they continue, as you said, to streamline the business and cut down on operating funds, which frankly was a major positive, a major uh, factor contributing to the fact that Endeavor even wanted to buy this business because they thought we will come in there, we will cut down on the excess, we will maximize the monetization of every single other aspect of the business, and we will turn this in this thing into a bigger money maker than it ever has been before. And they were absolutely right about that because they have increased all of the profits across the board in every category since they took over for the Fertitas. And some of these numbers that John Nash gives about how much their individual revenue streams have increased over the last couple of years are just, they are amazing. They're unbelievable. And, and as he says near the end of this article, probably making more money than all of the other MMA and boxing promotions combined. Right. Combined. And at this point, I kind of find myself wondering, do like, what are we supposed to do with information like this? Because the, the picture here has been clear for a while and it's the disparity seems to be only growing. The, the facts seem to be, not at all in dispute where as John Nash mentions in this thing, you know, you have, you're coming off a year where you didn't have a whole bunch of superstars fight. And so that leads to, uh, at least on paper, the drop in fighter pay to some extent until maybe a large extent because you don't have a lot of your highest earners out there. And yet you are still earning a ton of money because you have so many guaranteed rights deals and sponsorship is up and site fees and things like that. And so, You've got the UFC making more and more money every year and also making more and more money on a talent base that has less and less leverage if, as time goes on. You know, you yeah. where you, you had like one Conor McGregor come up, uh, he became a huge deal. The UFC seemed to course correct away from that a little bit and, and towards more of a content uberala's approach to this thing and then when you saw a more recent example where you had somebody like francis and a potential huge stars heavyweight champion who wanted some money money clearly that the ufc could pay him yeah they've got it the money is there that's one of the things about this fighter pay discussion that no one ever seems to say out loud you start talking about paying the fighters more and all these reply guys on twitter start to act like you need to come up with a bunch of more money to do it you don't it's already there they already have it it's just a matter of who gets to keep it that's the whole point 
And so, like, when we're talking about we're, we're mad, we couldn't make the John Jones, Francis Ngannou fight. I mean, you had a whole bunch of money that you could have thrown Extra at that money. problem. Extra money, in fact. Yeah, I just, I tweeted this earlier today. You could have offered both those guys $15 million apiece for that one fight, and you still would have been almost $3 million under what you paid the year before. And, yeah, and then that's without factoring in the money, that the added money you would make from doing a huge fight like that. Yeah. And so, but then... You look at the things from the UFC's perspective, right? And they're going, well, why do we need to do any of that? We can let this guy walk. He's going to go over what? And he's going to be in the PFL. He's going to go do some boxing stuff. Good for him. We're going to continue just churning out money over here. And with the pipeline that we have through stuff like the Dana White's Contender Series, it's going to be a lower and lower paid class of fighter that fills out a lot of these cards. And so the margins just get better and better for us. And they're already insane. Those margins are already completely insane in the UFC's favor. And we've seen, you know, for years now, the fighters complain, especially at a certain point in the fighter life cycle. They tend to get clued in a little more and complain about the ways that they've been exploited uh, for the tremendous wealth of the ownership class here in the UFC but we also see them no real closer to being able to do anything about it. And they seem like they have less power now than they've ever had. And there's, a, there's less will on their part to do anything about it. How do you not look at a report like this where you see the the gap only growing and it going into you know, more money for the UFC and less money for the fighters and not think that's just going to continue? Like yeah. that, we'll be we could be looking at you know we're at thirteen percent now. You could be looking at ten percent here in a couple of years. Yeah, one number. Well, there are a lot of numbers on here that should make you raise your eyebrows if you are an actual fighter. But one of the numbers that you should make you take interest is the number about sponsorships, because the UFC made fifty two million dollars in sponsorship money in two thousand fifteen. In two thousand twenty two, they made a hundred and sixty seven million dollars in sponsorship money including area and octagon signage digital and broadcast content on-air announcements special appearances by fighters and other forms of advertisement so like they said they told you you couldn't have condom depot you couldn't have raised tire barn barn on the back of your shorts but here they are decorating everything they can with every corporate logo they could possibly slap on their individual names now yeah. see that's written. the thing once i saw this number for the sponsorships i was like how are you making that much money off sponsorships and you still think you need to sell individual names <laughs> how much money is enough for christ's sake yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think the one of the important things about fighters is that they feel powerless in this conversation because the UFC is such a behemoth. Everybody knows that if you speak up at all, they will seek retribution against you. They will throw you out of the company if need be. And so everyone just is too scared. Everyone is so scared to sacrifice their limited window of earning potential as an athlete in this sport to essentially take a stand in a way that is going to help other people and might help other people more than it helps you if you are the pioneer and one of the first people to stand up and do it. And look, Francis Ngannou stood up and did it. He was the heavyweight champion. And they pretty much said, uh, take a walk. We're not paying you any more than we have to. And so you've got this situation that I think feels pretty hopeless for fighters. And that's why you're not seeing them take a stand on, on much of this, but I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to ignore these, these numbers, man. It's just, 
it's really, really hard to ignore. Uh, one of the other numbers that I wanted to throw out, just in case you are wondering perhaps why uh, Dana White became a big-time pandemic denier, is that the UFC's live event revenues in 2020 were $98 million. In 2021, they were $106 million. And now in 2022, when we are allowed to get mostly back to business, $126 million. In case you were wondering uh, why he doesn't think the doctors know anything now, it's because they were keeping that extra Thirty million from the UFC's coffers. Well, and what's crazy about that is that number going up so much, even while they've stayed home at the apex for so many of these fights, where yeah. you past the point where you really need to, you could be getting back out there, you you could be doing more live event stuff, but you still are making a ton of money. You're still improving your live events revenue, even while you just keep a lot of these fight nights. Like this one that we just watched, Home in the Apex, which also uh, one of the points I wanted to make. I don't know if you saw this where uh, Natalia Silva, who won second fight of the night, you know, uh, where after the dude who had $7 in his bank account as the curtain jerker, she comes on. It's the second fight in the day. She gets a first round TKO win. And then afterwards, this is her on Twitter uh, today saying, hey, Dana White, you said you arrived late and couldn't watch my fight on Saturday. What a pity. Maybe if you... I think want to watch, uh, can think I deserve the bonus watch there in UFC fight pass. And and she even includes the UFC fight pass at trying to be a company (laughs) person and think about this. It motivates me at UFC. And then the picture of her, uh, throwing a head kick there. And it's like, man, first of all, what is even the point of some of this stuff where you're, you're at your own apex facility in the city in which you live and Dana White can't get to the fights on time. Can't even see all his own fights. What, did he get caught up in traffic? You know what? Like, can't even. His, his own fighters are like, please, can you watch me fight for you at your facility in your home city? And him just being like, nah, I missed it. <laughs> uh, before we wrap this up, just wanted to, here's the, not going to say all the numbers, but media rights and content broadcast rights up considerably and remember those are the numbers that really take the risk out of the business for the ufc because they get those guaranteed uh rights payments from espn and elsewhere live event revenue up sponsorships up consumer products and licensing up selling general and administrative expenses decreased by 13 percent. direct operating cost decreased by three percent from 2021 to 2022 so uh you can just see that that is a recipe for making a lot of money and then not sharing it with anybody. Yep. All right. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, Dana White is not mad about Francis Ngannou leaving the UFC. He's laughing. (laughs) People keep asking him questions about this, and he keeps serving up the answers. Somebody asked him at this post-fight press conference over the weekend about the PFL deal, what he thinks about Francis Ngannou's new contract, et cetera, et cetera. He says, quote, and I am looking at the transcription here by Bloody Elbow, 
Uh, based on what I know about the deal, which is not much, you fucking liar, you probably know everything about it. Uh, it makes no sense to me, he says. You're going to pay a guy to not fight for a year, and it's all—it's only been like 18 months. He's fought three times in the last three years. It's not just what we it's just not what we do here. He says the day that we released him, I knew exactly what was going to happen. Francis wants to take zero risks. Doesn't want to take any chances. Obviously didn't want to take a chance against John Jones. After what we saw, after we saw what happened with Cyril gone, I don't blame him. I think the outcome would have been exactly the same. And I'm sure most of you do. And I'm sure Francis does too. Of course, then Francis Ngannou responds with his point-by-point list, dismantling the things that Dana White says. He says, what is your problem with me? Number one, I completed my contract, was a free agent, and chose to walk away. You didn't release me. Number two, I hate taking risks. That's why I defended my title to fulfill my contract with no ACL or MCL. Number three, the reason I fought three times in three years is because you wanted to control my deal and sign a new one and freeze me out. I owe these guys three fights a year. Isn't that what you say? What happened? I always asked for and never said no to any uh, fight in three years. I'm finally getting paid and respected and have a deal that's fair and equal for all parties. Why are you so against me being free and happy? Uh, So I don't know where you want to start with this, although it seems like Dana White says a number of pretty ironic stuff there in his, by Dana White standards, relatively short quotes here about Francis Ngannou. Yeah, I mean, this uh, pretty standard Dana White stuff. I appreciate Francis Ngannou doing this point by point breakdown of it, though, because it's it's very like rational and well laid out here, especially this argument that Dana White has made before about Francis in particular, where he wants to paint him as risk averse, like this guy just doesn't want to take any chances, which, you know, first of all, let's, we're not even going to talk about the fact that you're talking about the dude who walked out of the sand mines of Cameroon and nearly died to emigrate to Europe so that he could pursue his dream of becoming a professional fighter. So, that doesn't sound to me like somebody who is just scared of taking a chance, you know? Yeah. <laughs> just as a just as a character issue. But then also, as Francis Ngannou points out here, he, we all heard this story from several different sources about him going into the Cyril Gone fight knowing his knee was fucked. Knew yeah. it. Knew yeah. that he's the heavyweight champion. He's going in there to fight this guy, a dangerous opponent, especially stylistically for him. Knows that he's essentially on one leg, that he has, he has one knee that is completely fucked, and also knows the UFC would love nothing more for him than for him to lose that fight, to hurt his negotiating position. We all saw that screenshot of the text from a Las Vegas number that his manager got basically being like, fuck you, your guy's going to lose tomorrow, and then we'll see who's laughing, you idiot. And all of that was very clear. Franson got it, went in there. Anyway, took that fight when he didn't have to so they could finish up his contract, found a way to win the fight. That, again, that's not a risk-averse person. That's not a guy who's scared to take chances. But the idea that we get to turn around and say to the heavyweight champion, well, why isn't this guy want to bet on himself? He already did. 
This is him collecting the money, collecting the winnings on his bet on himself. That's what this is. Trying to paint it as if like he's scared because he's scared to take a chance. He you know he 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 doesn't want to uh, bet on himself. Doesn't think that he doesn't believe in himself enough. Or doesn't want to take any risks. He's already taken them. He's taken a lot of them. This is the part where he gets the rewards. And to try to paint it some other way, especially from coming from Dana White, where the if you want to talk about who doesn't want to take some risks, they're the ones who wouldn't pay up to make that fight happen. Uh, confident that you'll make the money back by doing a good job of promoting a super huge fight between Francis Ngannou and John Jones. That seems like the risk-averse stance to me. The people who are just like, we'll take the guaranteed rights money and we don't want to try to do anything big. And this this other stuff where, like, especially here at the end where he says, I'm finally getting paid and respected and have a deal that's fair and equal for all parties. Why are you so against me being free and happy? <laughs> Why indeed? Yeah. Is it because yeah. other people might see it and be like, there's another way to be? That you don't just, like, the, the only path to uh, financial freedom and satisfaction in this sport doesn't have to be through, like, praying for the largesse of the UFC to just rain down upon you at whim that you could actually kind of pave your own path, which is what Francis Ngannou is doing here. Yeah. Uh, here is what your risk adverse guy did in the UFC overall, the 17 and three overall record fought Curtis blades twice fought former champion Andre Arlovsky beat him fought former multiple company champion Alistair Overeem, beat him, fought Cain Velasquez, once regarded as maybe the best heavyweight of his generation, beat him, fought former UFC champion Junior Dos Santos, beat him, fought former or current heavyweight champion Stipe Miocic, lost first time to him, came back, beat him by second round KO uh, the second time, and then fought uh, interim heavyweight champion Cyril Gaon beat him there's your risk averse guy fighting every elite heavyweight that you had to throw at him during his time in the ufc and beating almost all of them beating all of them just you know lost the fight to stipe miocic and then had a bit of a stinker against Derek lewis but uh it beat every elite heavyweight that you have in the ufc and now suddenly you're saying he's afraid to fight john jones neither of those guys are afraid to fight each other. They just both wanted to get paid a lot of money to do it in what they quite rightly identified as potentially the biggest fight in UFC history. And it's just like, you look at these Dana White quotes and it's just like point after point being like, he only fought three times in the last three years. It's just not what we do here. Like unless you're Conor McGregor, right? Then you get to fight uh, as infrequently as possible, unless you're John Jones and you are, in one way or another barred from competing, but then spent your own gear sitting out in a contract renegotiation. How many times in the last three years has John Jones fight fought, but he's the current UFC heavyweight champion. So we're going to give him a pass on that. We just talked about how the UFC as one of its primary business operations has eliminated all of its own risk by putting on these fights. So how are you going to sit there and say the fighters, Francis and Ganu, who goes out there to have a fucking punch fight with every heavyweight in the world. How are you going to say that guy doesn't want to take any risks? It's fucking ridiculous. And all of this is is so, I don't know. He's just, I mean, he's trying to play the Dana White promoter playbook, right? That he has, that has been in front of him at every press conference in his mind brain since 2008 or something like that. 
And it just rings so hollow when you try to play all of that, when you try to play those cards against Francis Ngannou. It's just ridiculous, well, and I'm surprised how many people seem to believe it. Well, and especially those people must have short memories because we talked about this a little bit on Friday, but Dana White now is going to sit there and be like, well, look what happened to Cyril Gaon against John Jones. That's why Francis Ngannou doesn't want that fight because the same thing would happen to him against John Jones. Whereas when Francis Ngannou beat Stipe Miocic in their rematch, this is what Dana White had to say about John Jones asking for more money to fight Francis Ngannou. If I'm John Jones and I'm home watching this fight, I'd start moving to 185. I could sit here all day and tell you what show me the money means. I tell you guys this all the time. You can say you want to fight somebody, but do you really want to? So, just so we're clear on this. When Francis Ngannou beat Stipe Miocic and John Jones wanted more money to fight him, it was John Jones's way of not wanting to actually do that fight because Francis was so scary. Then, Francis wants some big payday to fight John Jones, which is Francis's way of avoiding John Jones, because we see what John Jones did to Cyril Gunn, he would obviously do the same thing to Francis. But so now John Jones is going to turn around and fight the guy who Francis Ngannou sent to the Shadow Realm back when it was so scary that you were thinking John Jones might want to move to middleweight just to put extra distance between him and Francis Ngannou. And you're probably going to end up telling us that that one is going to be a huge deal and a big fight for both guys, a risky fight for both guys. You know, we're going to find out who's really the heavyweight champion several years after Francis Ngannou beat Stipe. Make it make sense. It's just the Dana White fight promoter thing. The biggest fight ever is the next one we got. None of this shit that happened before means anything. I can twist the logic to make it mean whatever I need it to mean in the moment. Anybody who wants to be paid their worth is just scared and and knows that they're going to lose. That's all. All right, let's go ahead. We'll do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, you know what headline you can write to make me read your story 100 times out of 100? What's that? Rival karate camps break out in wild brawl. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. It touches every base. Touches every base for me. <laughs> Did you see this at yes. a karate combat? Was it 37 or something? I don't know how many karate combats. 39. Karate combat 39. These motherfuckers are throwing stools into the crowd. Yeah. In a in a brawl between rival karate camps. Goat shed. That's the name of one of these. See, that's you, you don't call your karate camp goat shed, man. You call it the Black Dragon Society, or you call it the Golden Monkey Fight Club, or it's like the Drunken Snake. You know, that's what you call your traditional martial arts fight club. You don't call it goat shed. You got to give it a sweet name like Razor Talon or something like that. Creeping Ninja. I, I joined the Creeping Ninja camp way a hundred times before I would join the goat shed. Hundred times, uh, but here you got these two these two camps going at it. We start throwing uh, stools into the audience, mouthpieces, water bottles. You want to see some security guards earn their money? By the way, you watch this video of the brawl yeah. at uh, Karate Combat Thirty Nine. I already thought Karate Combat was kind of cool the way that they got the guys in the little pit there, <laughs> punching and kicking each other in the geese and whatnot. You got GSP there. You got Boss Root. And I already liked it. But you want to make me tune in to your karate combat organization? Throw some stools in the crowd. Yes. I'm just saying. I mean, I guess I'm a Philistine. But that's 
That's kind of what I want out of a, a pit fighting, full contact karate league. Because I want to see some brawls in the crowd and some shit get thrown over the rail. I'm just saying. I mean, I feel like throwing the stool into the crowd sounds like a great idea until about 10 seconds after you've done it when you've realized, <laughs> well, there went our stool for one thing. Uh, Second of get all, that stool back, please. Now, guess who has a stool to throw? Because <laughs> it's not you. Yeah. Yeah. They also probably got some chairs out there, too. I would guess. I don't know. I don't know, but that's just how it is. I don't know. I'm just saying, give me a brawl at a full contact karate event anytime. Rival karate camps is that you start your headline with those three words and you have my attention. Yeah, you had me at rival karate camps. Then you're going to tell me they break into a brawl. I don't care what they do next. That's clickbait. That's clickbait. That's going to get my click every single time. It's not clickbait if it delivers what it promises, which this one does. No, it's it's clickbait that planted a seed and flourished into a beautiful flower is what it is. (laughs) Also... I don't care what words come after rival karate camps. I don't care if it's like rival karate camps brawl on the streets. I don't care if it's rival karate camps break into a song and dance number in an Italian restaurant. Rival karate camps put aside their differences to help get a cat out of a tree. Mm -hmm. I don't care what it is. You start off with rival karate camps. Yes, go on. I'm listening. Have Rival karate camps hold charity car wash. I'm there. I'm there. Rival karate camps announce a plan to get together, have a few beers, barbecue, and play some cornhole in the backyard. Sure. Yeah. By all that's, means. Uh, that's Bloody Elbow, in case you're wondering. That's where the rival karate camps headline originated and just made me so happy when I saw it earlier today. Well, Chad, this week, for my just saying stuff, I'm just saying. I'm not sure I'm going to make a huge deal about it. Uh, as far as a question of ethics and MMA journalism, because it's true that already we have we have seen many big issues come up with ethics and MMA journalism. But right now I'm just saying, and I guess I never thought that this would need to be said, if the head of the biggest organization in the sport, the sport that you report on, regardless of the context, how fun and lighthearted you might think it is, If that person stands up, reaches into his pocket, takes out $100 cash money, and gives it to you, I'm just saying, best way to play it is probably, thank you, no. I cannot accept that. A polite decline to take cash money from the promoter of the biggest organization in the sport that you cover. That should just kind of be like an obvious bad look. It's not a great idea to go ahead and just be like, yeah, thank you. Because for one thing, it's 100 bucks. It's not a life-changing amount of money. <laughs> for another thing, you just got literally paid by the promoter right in front of everybody. It's just, it's not a great idea. I'm just saying. But then also, the thing that is kind of amazing to me is when you see this backlash from this reporter, Amy Kaplan, who took the $100 from Dana White for correctly naming that it was Henry Cejudo, who, who said he doesn't think Aljamain wants to fight, stepped up and offered to take the fight. You know, kind of an easy trivia question, as trivia questions go. Uh, The response from USC matchmaker Mick Maynard on Twitter, where he writes, I can't believe she is being attacked for this, meaning taking the money. And right there, you think he's going to be like, oh, it's a lighthearted, like, hey, Dana White said, I'll give you a hundred bucks to anybody who can name it. She named the guy. He gave her the hundred bucks. You think that's where he's going to go next. But oh, no, because the next sentence says, 
The ethics of journalism have been dead for a long time. If you want to attack lack of ethics, there are bigger fish to fry. He's not making the argument that this was not an ethical breach. He was making the argument that there are no such thing as as ethics in journalism, especially in sports and MMA media at all, because it's all been destroyed, kind of probably with help from the UFC, undercutting it at every possible turn. I'm just saying, didn't think it was going to go that way in his defense. Ethics don't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I like Amy Kaplan. I think everybody who knows her does. She does a good job covering the sport. Generally, she seems like a, a good person who does, in fact, have upstanding journalistic morals and ethics. Uh, there are probably a lot more people in that room who would have taken the $100 if it got, when it got slapped down on the podium. But I do agree with you. You can't take... $100 from Dana White. I'm just saying, don't take any money out that the promoter takes out of his pocket and hands to you. Just don't. Just saying. It's a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, we're going to try to rattle off an after hours here for those of you who are the uh, $20 patrons of the co-main event. Don't forget to join up. If you are not a current patron during pledge month, you can save 10% off an annual membership. Go over to patreon.com slash co-main event uh, and check us out over there. As for the rest of you, thanks for listening. We are done. We are through. We are out. All right. Here's what I wanted to ask you on a personal note given that we just talked about rival karate camps break into wild brawl. You ever you ever been in a brawl? You ever been in something that could be described in print as a wild brawl? Yes. It, okay. It's been, it's been decades, but yes. <laughs> well, I hope it wasn't yesterday. Jeez. I would like to think if you were going to be in a wild brawl that I would be invited. That if we were going to have like a dojo storm or a rumble, that you would call me up and be like, hey, man, we're having a rumble. Start pounding nails through the baseball bats at your house. Yeah. And bring them to the rumble. Bring so a when, kettlebell when, and swing at somebody's head because we know we know yeah. what you're about these days. Tell you what, though, one thing I learned about being in some of those wild brawls and and, and ones where uh, wait wait a chair. some like there's multiple brawls. <laughs> I've been in a few where you've seen uh, a chair, objects of other sorts get lifted up and thrown across, and you know when you do that, you don't know who you're hitting with it, so it's kind of irresponsible to 